Welcome to Behind the Wings, a new podcast by Wings Over the Rockies Air and Space Museum. We've got a lot to explore. Stories about how history shapes aviation today, trailblazers in space, and up-close looks at iconic aircraft of the past, present, and future. It's time to go Behind the Wings. Hey everybody, I'm your host Rick Crandall. With me is Wings Over the Rockies President and CEO John Barry. John, what do we have for folks today? Today's show is a conversation with Steve Lindsay, who is a former United States Air Force pilot and get this, NASA astronaut with more than 30 years of flight test experience. Now today, he is Vice President of Strategy at Sierra Space, where he leads the design, development, testing, and operational employment of the Dream Chaser spacecraft, a modern reusable lifting body space system for uncrewed and crewed transportation to low Earth orbit. Now we have a Dream Chaser we call HL-20 at Wings Museum. It's a mock-up, so it's great to have the opportunity to go behind the wings under the Dream Chaser spacecraft. During his 15-plus year tenure at NASA, Lindy completed five space flights, logged more than 1,510 hours in space. He last served as chief of the astronaut corps, overseeing spacecraft development, crew selection, and training and flight test and crew operations in support of the Space Shuttle, International Space Station, and Constellation programs. Steve Lindsay's also featured in our latest season four of Behind the Wings on PBS, live right now on Rocky Mountain PBS and Wings Over the Rockies YouTube channel, so you can see Steve and the Dream Chaser in action. And now for a quick announcement about membership at Wings. If you enjoy listening and want to support Behind the Wings in our mission, let me tell you how. Support Wings' mission by becoming a member for awesome perks like free admission to both locations and free access to other cultural institutions around the world. Join a great community of aerospace fanatics and lifelong learners. Use the code SEASON1 for a 20% discount. Offer valid for new members through the end of October 2022. To learn more, visit visit wingsmuseum.org slash membership. And now back to the show. Well, enough of us then. Let's get to him. Let's get started. Steve, it is great to, to meet you. I uh, was at the academy the same time you were. I wasn't there as a student or a, as a cadet. I was there on uh, the faculty teaching television production up there on the Bluetooth News Channel. But uh, our paths must have somehow crossed all those years ago, and uh, it's good to meet you officially here today after uh, following a bit and knowing of your career. Welcome to the show. It's it's good to have you here. Well, thanks, and uh, interesting you said Bluetooth, because I did honors English and yeah. did some Bluetooth stuff back in the day. I remember that well. Perfect. Might have. Probably <laughs> edited the heck out of whatever it was I was doing. <laughs> well, I'd love for you to start off, if you don't mind, just talking a, a little bit about your, your career and getting uh, from point A to uh, point where we are right now. Oh, gosh. Uh, well, I guess I'll go back to the beginning. I uh, Well, I always wanted to do, do, do two things. I wanted to be an engineer because my father was an engineer and really looked up to him and uh, from as long as I can remember, I wanted to fly airplanes. I could never figure out how I was going to be able to do both of those things. But when I was a, about a sophomore in high school, I uh, took a field trip with my school from California out to Colorado. And uh, one of my teachers, actually my band director, said to me, Steve, we're going to go visit this place called the Air Force Academy, uh, which I had never heard of. 
uh, keep in mind, I was a sophomore in high school at that time. He said, pay attention to this because I think this is where you want to go. And so sure enough, I visited and said, you know, great engineering school, full ride scholarship. If you're lucky enough to get selected, you make it through uh, and you have a chance of pilot training. So I, uh, I made that decision. I'm pretty sure they got my paperwork mixed up with somebody else's and somehow they <laughs> accepted me in and uh, I ended up at the Air Force Academy. Finished there after four years and uh, went off to pilot training, completed pilot training. And then I was a signed operational pilot first as a, as a RF4C pilot. Did that for uh, about three or four years, was an instructor pilot and several other things, a lot of deployments. And then I uh, kind of got uh, to looking at, um, like, I wonder what I could do where I could combine engineering and flying, those two things that I love in science. And so... I decided to apply to Air Force Test Pilot School. I was eligible by then, and uh, I applied, and uh, was fortunate again to get selected to that. And uh, when actually the Air Force sent me to grad school first, and uh, and then straight to test pilot school out of that. And graduated from there, ended up in an Eglin Air Force Base, flying uh, then uh, uh, straight F4s and F16s, and uh, and did a whole bunch of flight tests. We did primarily. Uh, weapons testing, smart weapons testing, things like that. Did that, love that job. Actually, I wish I was still doing that job. Uh, <laughs> I guess I can't anymore. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I think as a kid growing up in the Apollo era, we all thought about being an astronaut back in those days because it was, you know, it was the Apollo program was so cool and what was going on. But I never really serious took any of that seriously, but I found myself after being a test pilot for a few years and a bunch of my friends were applying to the astronaut program and, you know, first I wasn't going to do it. Then I decided, well, I'll apply because same thing. I'll get a, get a combined flying and engineering and science and uh, just a little bit faster and a little bit higher is all. So I applied to that. Uh, again, somebody got my paperwork mixed up and somehow I slipped through the cracks and uh, ended up an astronaut. I was at NASA for 16 years. Uh, flew five space shuttle missions, chief of the astronaut office, a bunch of other things. Then uh, ended up uh, at the end of that career coming here to Colorado, uh, where I work for uh, Sierra Space, working on the Dream Chaser program, among other things. So that, in a nutshell, is kind of how I got where I am. So, Steve, let's go back a little bit and just start. You know, here you're at Academy graduate, you go to pilot training, you you got yourself established, uh, you apply for the test pilot school, but, you know, what was the telling point that finally made you decide that you wanted to apply to be an astronaut? What made me decide to apply to be an astronaut? I think it was really uh, what they were doing. I, I, uh, I, was, I was always enthralled with the space shuttle, quite frankly. Uh, it was a magnificent flying machine, incredibly capable vehicle that starts its life as a rocket and then turns it into an orbiting laboratory and rendezvous docking platform and you know, enters like a capsule and lands like an airplane. And all of the science and engineering and, and all of that in the community, um, that that's kind of, it was really, again, combining my passions of flying and engineering and science and uh, decided to throw my hat in the ring and apply. And I figured the worst they could say was no. And surprisingly, they said yes. <laughs> Surprisingly, yeah, sure. I, I'm going to now approach this from the uh, from the layman perspective because I'm still that guy. When it was July 20th, I went outside and looked up at the moon and remembered '69, and on the front yard, 
you know, sitting on the lawn, looking up there and wondering what it must have been like to be there and, 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 you know, how excited we all were as kids then about it. And I still wonder that today, you know, on space shuttle missions and, and the International Space Station, just, just the simple awe, regardless of how educated you are, how, you know, how uh, tainted you are by having done this several times to still be in that position and to look down on the earth must be something remarkable. It is. And, and I'll reflect on a couple of things. Um, what I always found um, was, you know, you can get used to the zero gravity and floating around and weightlessness and working up there and, and all of that sort of thing. Uh, but one thing that no astronaut I know has ever gotten tired of is looking back at our favorite planet, which is always going to be Earth. And uh, it's a beautiful place when you can, uh, you know, you get to go all the way around it every 90 minutes when you're up on orbit and, uh, and you see it. And, uh, and it does, you know, people have described it as the overview effect. And it does change you. It changes everybody a little bit differently. But, it, but you think about the world a little differently after you get to do that. And that's something that no matter how many times I've been around the Earth, um, Never get tired of looking at looking at that. So it's a, it's pretty special, and I honestly I just feel really blessed to have gotten the opportunity to do what I did. Hand in hand with that, um, February twenty fourth, two thousand eleven. Right, you're on the final mission of Discovery. Uh, that must have come with a whole different set of emotions. Oh, it did, and it was uh, you know interesting about that. I, I never intended to fly the last flight of Discovery time I was chief of the astronaut office and uh, you know, my job was to assign other crews to fly and I'd already flown four missions. I thought I was done, but uh, the uh, NASA administrator and center director Johnson really pushed me really hard and said at the time when I was assigned to Discovery, it was supposed to be the final shuttle mission. And uh, they said, we want, you, we want to pull you out of your job. We want you to command that final space shuttle mission you know, for, for the nation. And uh, so I was I argued with them about it for a while, and uh, you know, I said, "Hey, my job's to assign other people to fly, not for me to fly." And uh, you know, and my center director at one point said to me, "See, would it help if I ordered you to fly it?" And I said, <laughs> "I said, yeah, if you order me to fly it, then I'll fly it." So he ordered me to fly it, and uh, I mean, not really, but uh, but in, anyway, so I, uh, I I I accepted and and went into that last flight, but it was really special. You know, Discovery was a very special vehicle. It was. Um, it flew 39 times in space, more than any other space shuttle. It did all of the really, of all the missions that were kind of highlighted in the program. You know, it did both the, uh, actually all three of the return to flight test missions after both the Challenger and the uh, Columbia accident. I had the privilege of commanding one of those submissions. Um, it flew the mission when we flew with John Glenn. I also had the privilege of doing that. It flew, uh, Flew the Hubble mission to put Hubble up into orbit, and uh, and a lot of all of those really um, landmark missions, Discovery flew it, and so be able to fly Discovery, and and I can tell you on that 39th mission, after it spent I think a total of 365 days in space when it landed, we landed it on that last flight. There was not a single thing wrong with it, not a single thing, not a latch, nothing. It was in perfect condition. So it was also sad to step out of it and knowing that it was uh, never going to fly again. Were you the last one out? Yeah. Yeah. I was a commander. <laughs> I was the last one out. Yeah. So. Of course you yeah, were. They didn't really have to pry me out of it, but uh, I thought about just staying there. <laughs> <laughs> 
You know, Steve, we, uh, you and I have talked about the catastrophes that we've had on, and now seeing, of course, with the fire way back in the 60s and, of course, Challenger in 1986 and in Columbia in 2003. Talk us through a little bit about how those incidents affected NASA and, and even you personally. Yeah, I I, uh, I think I was deployed down in Panama, maybe it was, when, when the Challenger accident happened. So I do remember that. Obviously, wasn't at NASA at the time, and I was definitely in the middle of, uh, in, of the Columbia mishap. I was the uh, in, when when that mission happened. Uh, for each um, space shuttle mission, the crew that's flying actually assigns a couple of family escorts, and, and the job of the family escort is to take care of the families while the uh, crew is flying in space uh, to keep in communications with them babysit their kids when they need it, you know, whatever they need, uh, and also take them to launch and landing and basically take care of the families and kind of act as the surrogate while, they're, while their loved ones are on orbit. And uh, for, the, for that Columbia mission, I was, uh, I was actually the family escort for that mission. So I was, uh, I was there for launch. And of course, I was there standing by the runway uh, with the families that day that the Columbia didn't return. So I, it, had a, it had a profound impact on me. It's a day that I try not to think about too much uh, because of what it was like, but it was much harder for the families than it was, certainly was for me. And so it uh, impacted me profoundly. Of course, John, you were, you were on the board, so executive director, so you know this as well as, as I do, the causes of that accident. And uh, a quick story that I don't know if I ever told you, John, is that when I flew my first flight, uh, it was on Columbia. And we did a 16-day science mission. Um, and, you know, we'd, we'd had problems with foam coming off the tank. And, uh, you know, the cause of the Columbia accident was foam coming off the external tank. A big chunk of it hit the leading edge of the wing, put a hole in the wing, and we lost the crew on, on, on entry because uh, we couldn't handle the heating. And, and the wing failed, and we lost the crew. Um, but we'd been taking foam damage since the beginning of the space shuttle program that would come off that external tank. But on my first flight, um, STS-87, our tank had been sprayed. The foam, foam was sprayed on. It was sprayed on using a different blowing agent, a non-freon blowing agent for environmental reasons. And what we didn't know at the time is uh, we had significant foam shedding uh, during ascent, unexpected. And it was a real problem. We actually fixed that. Um, but when I landed after that mission, we typically get off the vehicle about an hour after landing, and if, if we're able to, we can do a walk around uh, before we go back to crew quarters. And I remember doing the walk around, walking underneath the uh, uh, heat shield, and I saw I saw tile damage everywhere. I saw holes in tiles. It looked it looked peppered white, and it's normally black underneath with all of the tile damage. I saw tiles that were melted and slumped, and, and damage everywhere. And instead of walking away from that, and I was a rookie. I didn't really understand what I was looking at. Instead of walking away from that saying, we have a significant problem here with this foam and we need to fix it, I walked away thinking, this vehicle is really tough. It can take a lot of damage and keep flying. And I drew exactly the wrong lesson. And I think, you know, from both of those accidents, you know, Challenger was a different situation with O-rings on, on the solid rocket uh, motors. I learned a lot of valuable lessons. One is never accept something when it's not performing like it's supposed to or what, what it's designed to never never accept always stay hungry for the data um, and you can never let your 
guard down in space flight. You have to you have to be relentless in your focused management of, of complex systems like this. And I think those are a lot of the major lessons for me personally. Once we figured out that when we when we finally shot foam and saw the hole in the hole in the wing and figured out what the problem was and the fact that we'd been living with it for so long and hadn't done enough to fix it, this really disturbed me because I felt like we were all to blame. Uh, each one of us could have could have figured this out and stopped it, and we didn't. It's hard to believe, you know, when you think about it, you tell the average person that that's what really caused the damage in the left wing and, of course, on reentry with that incredible heat. But it's one of those things where, you know, we move on. The, the NASA recovered. Uh, they flew again. You flew many more times. And I'd like to kind of get to the point, how did we start working, you know, with the Russians? I mean, that was a big part of what you had to deal with, too. So, because we couldn't get to space to the space station without the Russians. So let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, that was really interesting. Um, you know, and, and that, that we kind of started working with the Russians right about the time I got to NASA, where we had... Uh, we had made an agreement that we were going to partner with Russia on the space station. They were going to be a major uh, contributor and contribute modules. And then we started up what's, what's called the Shuttle Mir program, which is prior to the space station, where we would fly a handful of space shuttle missions and actually dock at the Russians' Mir space station. So we did some modifications to that space station, put a, a docking system that was, believe it or not, based on the Apollo-Soyuz system. And so we started this partnership, which was really, really interesting. When the space station started, the intent was to use the space shuttles to rotate crews. The challenge, though, was the space shuttle couldn't stay up for long durations. We couldn't stay up for six months at a time. We could only stay up for a couple of weeks at a time uh, because of how our systems were designed. So um, we were going to use shuttles for crew rotation, but we we're always intended to use Russian Soyuz for crew rescue. You always have to have a crew rescue vehicle on orbit uh, when a crew is up on orbit. And so we started training in Russia and training with Russians, and uh, which was which was kind of surreal for a lot of us, particularly those of us in the military, because you know ten years before we were we were staring across the Iron Curtain and uh, and quite frankly training for World War III. Um, and so what we found is when we started working with them, particularly at the astronaut cosmonaut level, is we're just like us, and uh, we became very good friends with them, close with them, and. Working with the Russians, uh, I think, is a challenge because our cultures are different. It still is. It especially is right now. But um, we continue to do it. But watching that evolve, and uh, I can tell you when we went up on Space Station, there was always a mixed crew, uh, usually Europeans, Japanese, U.S., and Russians uh, all the time. And uh, it works seamlessly. When we're, we're up there on Station, it's one crew. There's no national boundaries or anything like that. And I think... If you look at all the challenges we had with Russia over the year, even right now, in, in probably our biggest challenge since the Cold War, the relationship between us and Russia in space has remained constant and consistent and, uh, and pretty darn good. So it's, it's, it's different. Uh, you know, I mean, there's obviously more challenges now, but it's very interesting. Before you left NASA, was there already indications of this coming private space industry where... You know, were you starting to hear the rumblings of of the Bransons and Bezos, <laughs> Musks, and, and, yeah. and their interest? Yeah. So it's a good question. You know, when I was uh, when I was still at NASA, we were the so the suborbital space uh, stuff was going on um, 
uh, Virgin Galactic had just started up. They were working on Spaceship Two. I actually went early on, like when I was still at NASA in 2010, and went out and visited them in Mojave and flew the Spaceship Two simulator and White Knight Two, and and started getting involved in that. But what NASA was doing is they were, and and as part of the reason actually I left NASA is that you know I got I flew that last shuttle mission and and. What's happening, NASA was already investing in commercial cargo to space station, the commercial cargo program, which is what we're on now. Um, and they were just starting up the commercial crew program as well. And at the same time, what had happened was when uh, kind of as the result of Columbia, NASA did some soul searching about what does what our future look like? And the, uh, the decision that was made at the time was, okay, we're going to go pursue exploration. We're going to go back to the moon and then on to Mars, and we start focusing our resources on that. Uh, we're going to retire the space shuttle when the space station ends, or when the space station not ends, but when the space station uh, assembly is complete, which actually, on, on my last shuttle flight, that was the mission that we actually completed the space station. Um, so we were intending to, uh, you know, we were retiring the shuttles when the space station ended, and they were going to, but they were going to start this exploration program, and they were going to start investing in a commercial crew program to um, to provide, you know, companies to and, and essentially buy services back and forth to the space station. So what happened though is uh, they did a budget review when uh, President Obama came in. They looked at NASA's budget and all their plans and realized that. If we continue exploration, we'll have to deorbit space station by like 2017 or something like that because we won't be able to afford it. And we just invested huge amounts into it and we hadn't gotten that return. And so the decision was made, something has to give. So they canceled the exploration program. So I was uh, on the last shuttle mission kind of looking at what I wanted to do. The commercial crew program was taking off. The exploration program at the time was dead. It was canceled. I looked at the future and I was really worried personally that if something doesn't happen, and in particular if the commercial crew program does not succeed, knowing at the time that there was no exploration program, I could see a future where when the space station was done flying, our nation would be out of the human spaceflight business. And uh, at the same time, uh, Sierra Nevada Corporation is building Dream Chaser, came calling, a few other companies came calling. I kind of looked at what um, I'd actually never heard of this company. Honestly, never heard of them. And uh, I knew some people that worked for them, and they said, we'll come out and take a look and see what we're doing. And, and I saw the Dream Chaser a lot. I, I still believe the wings are the future. I saw the vehicle. I took it apart technically in my head, trying to figure out what was wrong with it. Didn't find anything significantly wrong with it. So I thought, this is a good opportunity. It's a high risk. At the time, we only had 25 people working on the program and uh, very little money. Uh, but... I thought, you know, where can I make a difference? And I felt like at NASA, with no exploration program and just the uh, space station, that I thought, well, maybe maybe I should go help out in the commercialization of low Earth orbit. Maybe I can make a difference there because I don't want to see our nation space program die. And I, honestly, I was really worried about that at the time. Now, since then, NASA's restarted the exploration program, so it's a lot better. Um, but that's really why I came here to do what I'm doing is, is for that reason. You know, let's talk about that now that you're working on and maybe a little bit of an idea of what your, the plans are to fly it and get it up into space. Yeah, so uh, we're in final production on what we call our DC-100, uh, which is our cargo, Dream Chaser cargo version. We're on contract for a minimum of seven missions, uh, services to the International Space Station to provide uh, 
cargo and research and, and back and forth to the space station. Uh, we're in 24-7 production, uh, 365 days a year. Um, we will fly next year in 2023. And so it's getting really exciting around here and really busy around here. Um, and so that, that system uh, includes Dream Chaser and what's called a cargo module on the back. That's a, a disposable, something we burn up on entry. It carries pressurized cargo and science and unpressurized cargo and science to and from the space station. We're also working on a crewed version of the Dream Chaser called DC-200, which we hope to fly in 2026 timeframe. And uh, as John mentioned, we're working on a, uh, a commercial space station because NASA has announced plans. They want to intend to retire the International Space Station by 2030. And just like a commercial crew and cargo, they want to be able to buy services on a commercial space station in the future. So working on that, we are partnered 50-50 with Blue Origin on something called Orbital Reef. Um, we actually have a contract with NASA to do the preliminary the design and development, but we have a we have a full-time program team working on that as well. But let me talk a little bit about the why and why now. So up until uh, a little over a year ago, we were part of Sierra Nevada Corporation, and uh, they've invested heavily on Dream Chaser um, as, as, long as, as well as NASA has to develop this program. What I've seen in the last 10 years since I've been here, though, is, is the world has changed. Um, the space station is retiring. They want to do a commercial space station. Uh, launch, launch vehicle costs, which are key to a commercial industry because it drives most of the costs is in the launch vehicle. Launch vehicle costs have dropped in half since I started. So with the advent of a commercial space station, launch vehicle costs dropping down, what that does is that increases access to space for everybody. And because we have a transportation system based on Dream Chaser, and we designed Dream Chaser at the beginning to be able to land anywhere in the world, you can land a 737 aircraft. And we had a, uh, a space station-based design that's actually based on an exploration program that my advanced programs group started working in 2017 with NASA. Namely, we were developing a uh, Earth-to-Mars human transport or NASA, we came up with an, an inflatable habitat to do that and realized very quickly this, this could form the basis of a really good commercial space station. We realized with transportation and the destination, we could create a, an international ecosystem, if you will, to provide services to private companies or whoever wanted to use it uh, to create a truly commercial low Earth orbit economy. So to do that, we carved out from SNC into a company called Sierra Space. And uh, that's our number one focus is to create this ecosystem, service everybody. And so, you know, what are those markets? Well, the one that everybody sees is the tourism market, right? And uh, SpaceX is already doing that. Virgin and Blue are already doing that. And that is an important part of the market. But that's, in my view, in the long term, is the smaller part of the market. What we're really looking at are things like advanced manufacturing space, additive manufacturing space. For example, what if um, today we build satellites and we launch them into orbit? And satellites live in a microgravity environment with very, very low loads. Yet every satellite we build, we have to do th two things. Number one, we have to we have to build them to withstand launch loads, which which is just the first ten minutes of their life, and they're much much higher than anything you see on orbit. So you have to build them strong just to be able to survive launch loads. And the other thing with a satellite is once you deploy it, you're doing this. Like we did with the James Webb Telescope and hoping that it works. Because if it doesn't work, then you've just thrown away several hundred million dollars. Well, what if instead of doing that, you could launch the raw materials into orbit, you could build it in space, you could check it out in space, and then you could deploy it with 100% success rate. Um, and so that's just one example of manufacturing. 
Biopharma is another area that's really, really interesting. One of the things we've learned from Space Station is that we can grow tissues, human tissues, in 3D in space. We can't really do it very well on Earth. What if in the future we could, we could grow organs in space, transplant, fly them back where, where the recipient needs them? Imagine if you had a company that could do that, how that would revolutionize organ transplants in the, in the long waiting lines and all of those sorts of things. Um, very viable as companies working on that, not to mention the other biopharma and pharmaceuticals and all the work that we've been doing on Space Station for years. Space Station is really not a good platform for developing something for commercial use. It's more for research. And so what we're trying to do is create essentially a business platform through Orbital Reef where you tell us what the business is you want to do. We'll handle the space part for it. We'll handle the logistics part for it through our ecosystem. and you bring your business to space and let's make it happen. So that's that's really what we're doing. Those are just a couple of examples of things we're working on. Well, that's an amazing vision, I tell you, and exciting, you know, because, you know, predictions that 10,000 people, not just astronauts that are trained in NASA, unique breed that you all are and were uh, to go up into space. Can you uh, give us your dream, the vision for the future of space exploration, uh, maybe 10, 20, 30 40 years in the future, Steve, and we'll close it out with that. Oh, boy. When I'm going, going to the future of space, what do I see? Well, personally, here's what I want to be able to do, John, within, say, the next 10 years, I hope. I want to be able to walk into a classroom. And I want to walk into a classroom and say to kids, hi, I'm Steve. I'm an astronaut. And I want all the kids to look at me and say, well, big deal. There are a gazillion of those. <laughs> that's, that's personally... It's always been my dream is to allow everybody else to experience what I was fortunate enough to experience. And, and, and that's, that's the future I want personally. Where I see us in 10, 15, 20 years is in low Earth orbit. I see not just one destination. I see multiple destinations. You know, I'm not talking just one space station, multiple space stations that are purpose built. Um, I hope. And, and our, our intent is it them to be international in nature, shared by many nations and, and many, uh, many companies uh, doing work. So I hope a, a collaborative low Earth orbit environment with, uh, with launch sites and landing sites all over the world. In the perfect world, I'd sure like to see a single or two-stage to orbit where instead of launching from rockets in the future, we're launching horizontally from runways. I just think that's uh, hopefully the future as well. In the exploration world, what I see is the potential of a, even a lunar economy. Uh, I think the, the lunar environment right now is very much exploratory. It's going to be for a while. But I can see that the, the low Earth orbit economy, particularly, as again, as launch vehicle prices and, and launch capabilities increase over time. And so I see those things happening. I think eventually we'll go to Mars. I think there, there are a few problems we have to solve, one of them being uh, radiation. Uh, for people, because it's pretty harsh for, for months at a time, which I think we can solve, and uh, in, in energy and mass to get there. Um, but I think one of the things we have to solve to go to Mars or further on is speed. I think the key to exploration is a lot more speed than what we have today. You know what I see in the future, John? I see you and me and Cray at the launch of DC-100 in 2023. <laughs> there you go. Since it's Colorado-based, I think we need to go. Uh-huh. I think you do, too. Yeah. We'll work on that. 
So. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> that was the whole purpose of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, Steve, yeah. this this was really, really, really great. Real quick before we let you go, I got to ask this because you you mentioned it just in passing, um, the web telescope. I sat for days waiting for those first images, right? I mean, I'm still that kid from yeah. the 60s who's every every time something like this is is happening, I'm just I'm excited. I'm I, you know, it's it's what I grew up with. That was pretty cool to see those first pictures. Oh, it was. I can't wait to see what else they have cuz you know they have a lot more. They're yes. just warming up with this thing and yeah. uh and it's uh what a fantastic success. I was you know, I've talked to a lot of the folks that were working on it, and there was like 166 different single point failures or something like that that all had to work for this to deploy correctly. And and uh, but it all did, uh, thankfully. And uh, images I made. I saw a picture the other day of something that was formed within 300 uh, million years of the beginning of the Big Bang, and that's just incredible to be able to see. Because you know, when you look through something like that out in the universe, you, you're really not looking through space. More importantly, you're looking through time. Yeah. You're looking back in the past. Yeah. You're looking at history. Wow. Yeah. All right. Well, Steve, thank you. All right. Thank you all. Thank you, Steve Lindsay, for joining us today. That was really cool. Uh, I loved going deeper with Steve after seeing him on Behind the Wings on PBS. So again, if you like this episode and want more, be sure to check that out on Wings YouTube channel or RMPBS. All right, John, what'd you get from that? Well, you know, when you talk about Sierra Nevada, in particular Sierra Space, uh, it is really going to be exciting to launch because they're expecting to get to space by 2023. Uh, the attitude and expectations and excitement that's generated by this team and to see those young people excited about the future going to space, they're building it, they're seeing it, they're going to realize it, and they're going to fly it. Don't forget, we have a special offer just for our podcast listeners. Use the code SEASON1 for 20% off your Wings Over the Rockies membership. Well, that'll do it, folks, for Episode 5. Thanks for listening to Behind the Wings. And be sure to visit www.wingsmuseum.org to join the conversation and access the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode of Behind the Wings. Head over to iTunes or wherever you listen to subscribe and leave a review. A good review, preferably. It helps us a lot, and we sure do appreciate it. We'll see you next time right here on Behind the Wings. <laughs>